Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Filled with fascination about work, culture and happiness. If you're thinking, how can I bring the pleasure back to my work? That's our mission every week, to try and find some evidence and science of how to do that. You can sign up for our mailing list by going to the website eatsleepworkrepeat.fm and while you're there, you can find episodes with Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Daniel Coyle, Sophie Scott, Adam Grant and Angela Duckworth, a whole load of people. This week, there's two episodes on one profession and I've focused on it because I think we can learn lessons from this profession about our own jobs last week's episode was inside hospitals this week two episodes about the police now later this week i'll be dropping a second episode which is talking about innovation under pressure chatting to stephen colgan and he's a fascinating character he's now a tv comedy writer he spent a career in the police in the crime prevention unit and it's fascinating one of the things that he discovered was when trying to reduce the noise from nightclubs he, he found that people couldn't make noise when they were eating sweets. So his uh, crime prevention there was giving lollipops to people as they left uh, nightclubs. That is a fascinating discussion. If you want to see how under pressure people can think of clever solutions, you'll love that episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have Andy Rhodes, who's the chief constable of the Lancashire Constabulary. And so Lancashire Constabulary up in the northwest of the UK... Andy's had 24 years policing experience in a, in a whole range of different areas, covering investigations, firearms, counter-terrorism. But now he's the national lead for well-being and engagement in the police. And I think it's this discussion there that really shows the challenge and how they're rising to it. I think really critically, there's a danger that in any profession, stress permeates our decision-making and none more so in, than in the police. If someone is under stress and making quick uh, judgments and assessments, clearly there can be a, a pitfall of that. And he really talks about how he creates a, a climate of safety, how he tries to ensure that these high levels of accountability, but also uh, strong levels of trust. Really brilliant discussion. Here's Andy. So Andy, you and I had this amazing chat, right, where you sort of giving me an insight into something yeah. that through my pampered office prism of vision, I hadn't seen. And it was this idea that the stress that in what you call blue light professions yeah. is having a massive impact on the ability to do the job. Do you yeah. want to just give us a step back and talk about maybe what's changed or why that's so important? 
<clears throat> well, I think it's one of these things that's coming to the forefront now because um, in general society, people are more confident to talk about things like mental health. So the stigma is reducing. And in our organisation, there's a very strong culture, be strong culture, where you know we don't talk about this sort of thing. So this is specifically in the police. This is specifically. I think it relates to other, other organisations. I mean, in general life, people don't always feel comfortable talking about the mental health. So you know, if they've got a physical illness, people talk about it. But if they've got a mental health issue, even stress and anxiety, depression, that type of thing, they're more reluctant to talk about it. And it's certainly been the case in the police that you really, in the culture I've come through, you just don't talk about this sort of stuff and you get on with it. Um, over the last few years, um, it's really started to come to the surface because there's a lot more conversations going on in general society about mental health. And what you find when you started, when we started looking at this work into uh, policing and other blue light services like, you know, your fire, your ambulance, your A&E departments, these are what we call high emotional labour jobs. They are jobs where you're exposed to a lot of traumatic experiences over and over again and if you are not talking about them you're not processing them and they can build up over time and have really detrimental effects to not you know mainly to you and your own health but lots of other things in your life and actually the organization so do you by that do you mean i'm trying to empathize with what a job looks like but you're called out on call you're asked to try and assess the situation and to actually bring empathy to that situation yeah. so what's going on and that constant sense of injecting yourself into different scenarios yes. is emotionally sad. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, so when I first joined the job, I came from um, a background where I'd never experienced the, some of the things that I started to see yeah. when I joined the police. It's like a whole world. What sort of thing? Uh, well, you know, seeing um, the difficult circumstances some people live in, seeing a domestic violence victim that Were you out and about doing assaulted. police work? Yeah, when you first join, yeah. everybody starts, everybody who's um, a chief constable like me starts out operationally right. as a PC. Do you? What, yeah. to, to see the reality of Everybody the job. comes from the shop floor up. Right, and so um, you're... Policing. you're there suddenly... are new routes in now the way you don't do right. that, but it, predominantly we still all start at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. So you're out and about yeah. and you're seeing all that. Yeah, and it becomes... Um, what happens is, you see, you, you're working with other people who are just going, well, this is what we do. And so you start to normalise it. Right. And because you normalise it, your levels of what shocks you start to raise and raise and raise. How quickly does that change? Uh, very, very quickly. Does it? Yeah, very quickly. Within the first couple of years um, of um, attending incidents, you know, you've got police officers dealing with, uh, even more so now, you know, they're dealing regularly, regularly with um, suicides. They're dealing with road traffic collisions, they're dealing with serious woundings, they're dealing with um, indecent imagery that they've got to view and grade. These are experiences that generally most people don't have and I think most police officers, police staff, uh, you know, you paramedics, they take a real pride actually in the ability to be able to do that work and, rem and remain compassionate. So the, the, big, the big argument I have with this is that if you don't invest in what I'm trying to do, it, you're unable to retain your empathy and compassion. You'll either burn out because you're too empathetic or you'll become dis dispassionate. You'll, you'll end up being very cold 
And when you call, God forbid any of us should have to have that knock on the door, you want somebody to have empathy. It's the golden, golden factor. You want, ep you want empathy if you're getting a Starbucks, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They talk about the empathy era, don't they? Yeah. So what we talk about is, you know, um, trust, confidence is everything in policing because we only police with consent in this country. That's the idea. That what does actually, that even mean? What's that well, mean? what it means is that there's a legitimacy to the fact that we are not, we have operational independence in this country from politics. Some people might argue with that to how far down that route sometimes okay. policing goes. But ultimately, people have got to trust the police um, in order to call them when they need, for, yeah. need help, yeah. rely on them to exercise the powers correctly. And there's lots of times where, um, you know, there's lots of examples where this doesn't go very well, but fundamentally British policing's found on that, founded on that. So, you know, one of the things that I think I try to talk about a lot around this particular issue is that, you know, are you, you might very rarely call the police, but when you do, your expectations are very, very high of not just the competency, but the way that you're treated. The way you're treated is as if not more important than actually the competency of the person doing what they're doing. But it's, it's, someone looks needs to look like they care yeah, that's right. rather than your crime is necessarily yeah, processed yeah. precisely. Yeah, yeah. So what what's happened in policing is there's been some really good interesting research done around an issue called organisational justice. Organisational justice is that how your organisation treats you whether it's really well or really badly, will transfer onto how you treat your customer or the public in our case. If my people working in my organisation don't think they're treated fairly, that we care about them, that will have a knock-on effect into how they behave operationally. And I think that's a powerful argument for some of the things we're trying to do around bringing a different culture into So the you're saying there's evidence that you, if you treat your police employees well... Yeah they will treat the people they're yeah. dealing with well. I'll give you an example of this one, Bruce. Right. My uh, wife, when she was younger, used to work for a, um, a, a retail clothing company. Yeah. It was a part-time job. Yeah. And the people who ran it weren't very nice to the staff. The staff were stealing things off them just because they didn't like the bosses. Yeah. And uh, this all goes fundamentally back to this isn't new stuff, actually. Some people in leadership positions have, have, have understood this for, for donkey's years. When I first started on the Wellbeing Agenda, there was a, a friend of mine who's in the military. He said, you've got to read a book called From Defeat to Victory by Lord Slim, the story of the Burma campaign. And I thought, well, what's that going to do with wellbeing? Surely it's about how to storm a machine gun nest. But I make a comparison between the Burma campaign and I won't name the company, but a company that my wife's daughter worked for, a big retail outlet, in 2017 on Black Friday. So what happened in 1943 is we were losing the war in Burma against the Japanese and everybody thought that the army have lost the bottle. Lord Slim was sent out there thinking, come on, get, get the oomph back in. He worked out there was more people dying from dysentery, malaria, poor health care than there was from Japanese bullets. Right. Four times as many. Yeah. And he formed the opinion that there's three things keep people moving forward. Uh, adrenaline, even if you, when you're at work. I'm looking forward to how this works yeah. with Black Friday. Well, I've got this. <laughs> right. you, you will have, when you've got a real deadline to hit, sometimes if you're in a team environment, it's yeah. a bit of a buzz, isn't it? You've yeah. got a bit of adrenaline getting something. It applies to any walk of life. Yeah. In my walk of life, it's right, there's a burglar 
hiding it, you know, running through the gardens. We're all off. We're forgetting about whether we're going to jump in somebody's greenhouse or there's going to be a pit bull behind the yeah. gate. We're off. The second thing is um, camaraderie. So Bruce is going, I'm going to go. Anyway, the third thing, though, and it's what they'd lost, was the r realistic expectation that if you fell, your organisation will be there for you, pick you up and look after you. Okay. Right, now, fast forward to I'm, the retail I'm, company. I'm all ears. It's Black Friday. I'm all ears. You've got a load of kids studying at university and they are wired up in this shop. This is a big, big, busy clothing retail shop on a high street. Everybody's on adrenaline. They've camaraderie because, you know, we're all working together, we're going out for a drink afterwards, and we're all a big team, and it's just a... It's, we're working our socks off. She asks her manager when her grandma is ill, who's got dementia, and her mum says, you might need to get home quick because she might not be here very much longer. She asks for two hours off early to go early, and they say, no, you can't go. They've lost her. They've lost discretionary effort. Right. So everybody... What, because you don't think... Back to your thing. You, you think, don't think that, they've got their ba your well, back. Yeah, because what they're doing is they're putting a lot of discretionary effort in. They're, they're all like running around and working longer hours. They're working a lot longer hours than they're getting paid for. Right. My people are putting themselves in positions of uh, all sorts of things. You, you can't force them to do it. Right. I can't force a police officer to carry a gun. I can't force a member of police staff to view indecent images all day. It's a voluntary, discretionary thing. Stopping a car with three people on down a country lane... You know what I mean? On yeah. your own. Remind me of those th things. So, so it was adrenaline, adrenaline camaraderie, and, and, and a realistic expectation that actually your organisation gives a toss about you. So bring it to the police. Is this backing them when there's a, when there's a question well, about their integrity? It, or? It, the thing is, when you then get into it, and the, the, all the research that we've done with um, Dr Ian Hesketh and everything, discretionary effort's the thing. All businesses run to some degree or another on discretionary effort. Back to Starbucks, it's discretionary about whether when you get your flat white, it's done with a smile yeah. and how are you, Bruce? Yeah, I can see that. They don't have to do it. Um, in my job, discretionary effort, you can't even cost it. Right. Because it's something that I think sometimes we take for granted. When you get into how do you protect discretionary effort, and then you get into staff engagement with your, with your people, real staff engagement, not an annual survey, but multiple channels of staff engagement to get feedback it, that tells you things that you probably assumed or didn't even know. And the things that it tells you that, it need, that are important to people are fairness. How things are done around here is fair. I don't want to be treated unfairly. That might be a promotion process. It might be, hold well, on a minute, there aren't enough people on my shift. I haven't got the right kit. You know, I've got a team leader who doesn't really seem to be interested in me. I've got a complaint and the organisation all, all of a sudden is like focusing it all on me rather than actually an organisation failing. What people get into then is, and this is the issue with people when you start looking at wellbeing, it all looks like everything. So lots of different factors. So when you look at, when you ask people what drives their discretionary effort, you can start prioritising the things that you spend your time on. Right. And, and what would they be? So, 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 so I, I, firstly, I'm very interested in the conflict, the innate conflict that must run through all of that, where simultaneously you've got multiple uh, parties happening. Simultaneously, yeah. member of the public says the police have, yeah, yeah, in some way encroaching their liberties. Yeah, yeah. You need to demonstrate that you've taken that seriously, yes. while yeah. also creating a trusting environment yeah, that yeah. the the police are going to be given a fair hearing and given the benefit of the yeah. doubt. Yeah. Wow. 
I mean, how do you even start there? Well, and of course, this is one of the issues we were discussing with the Police Foundation last night. Because people perceive or believe that they're not going to be treated fairly in that situation, they become very defensive. And the first thing they don't do, which is what most organisations want to do if they've made a mistake, is apologise and say, really sorry that your um, flat white was cold. Um, I'll make you another one. So what happens in, in organisations where there's low trust is people don't feel confident right. to just say, I made a mistake. Or we don't feel confident enough to say, I'm oh, really sorry about that. What can we do to learn? Because most members of the public actually just want the job to be done right, yeah. don't they? There's many aspects to it, but that you've picked up on a very important one there is how do we deal with that conflict where there's a very high expectation. Um, the, the trust levels in the police in this country are very, very high. Mm. And they've remained high despite some very high profile errors that we've made because we are in a very high risk business, mm. quite frankly. And mistakes are made. And sometimes we have people working for us who do bad things that mm. they shouldn't do, um, like any organisation. But because we, we are a monopoly business, you can't choose who your police service is. Because we have enormous authority, we can deprive people of the liberty and do all sorts of things. It's really, really important that we get that right mm. about fairness. <clears throat> the point, I think, that comes out of the wellbeing agenda is what, what I think is a very good route to take to get a lot of these discussions going in an organisation because they're not talked about a lot. And so if we look at, right, OK, well, people don't feel they've been treated fairly because of complaints have been made and how we've dealt with it. Well, <clears throat> what's the, what's the organisational impact of that on behaviours? Do people stop doing a certain type of work? Do they avoid going to certain types of jobs? Do they, they, they basically lawyer up and stop talking? And do we become very adversarial? Um, <clears throat> rather than deal with it proportionately, recover the service, and then learn from it and move on. So we know that we're in um, a very, very highly regulated type of work, necessarily so. But that high regulation creates sometimes a real concern around, along the workforce about whether or not they're going to be treated proportionately if they've made a genuine mistake or they've got a vexatious complainer. <clears throat> I think I, I look at all those things through what's the emotional impact and psychological yeah, yeah. impact on the work on the people who work here. Now in terms of the psychological impact the one thing that you was t were telling me about that that job that's so emotionally wearing yeah. unchecked you've observed that it can affect the judgment of the people concerned. Yeah, what what you have with um, exposure to, and this is well documented, um, sort of really, really complex, need, difficult environments, which is majority of what we work in, and exposure to trauma, so regular exposure to trauma, is that your brain, and we're doing a lot of work with this, uh, Dr Jess Miller's doing a lot of work on this, supported by the Police Dependence Trust, to look at the neuroscience of how we process trauma. And what the brain does is it ceases to be able to cope with processing your trauma because you're having so much of it. What, every day you're scraping someone off every the road, you go into... And, and this is very similar to a child that's brought up in a household where there's a lot of traumatic right. incidents, right? So the brain can only process trauma and make sense of it and file it away at a certain rate. And <clears throat> the, it's like having, she describes it like having a desktop on your computer with a load of files open, documents right. open. Okay. And they're not getting made sense of and put away. What can happen is certain types of pejorative attitudes and beliefs can start to be created because you haven't had time to process them. So if you look at um, how other professions deal with this, 
and I think I mentioned this to you, my wife's psychotherapist, a counsellor, she has to have supervision. And the reason she has supervision is to talk through how she's feeling about her clients. Right. Because if she starts having a certain view about them, blaming them, judging them, getting, which she will because you're dealing with very difficult, complex cases, that will affect her ability to have empathy and be congruent with them. So what you're basically saying is if by 10 years tenure as a therapist you start developing a bit of pattern recognition yeah, yeah. and you start profiling people yes. so that could be in terms of the police it could be a racial profiling or an age profiling uh, yeah that that estate it could be everybody who's got a drug problem right. is a thief right you know and so uh, but this must be hard because pattern recognition must help is, is the useful. police well you see this is the Obviously, the dichotomy. There is the what they call the copper's nose, which is that just doesn't look right. Intuition. Yeah. Now, intuition can be born out of some of this stuff. Yeah. Because it's thousands and thousands of experiences. Think that I go to that front door, knock on it, and say, "I've heard there's a story, a report, there's a disturbance going on here," and somebody says, "No, there's nothing going on here, mate. Everything's fine." What we don't want is police officers going, "Oh, right, thanks very much." Yeah. Are you with me? We want them to be curious, tenacious, and dogged. And we want them to be suspicious. So the other thing you've got at play here, Bruce, is we actually train people to be suspicious. I'm suspicious. When I walk out there, say if I walked out there with you, I'd be looking for I different things nothing. than you would. Right. I'm hypervigilant. And I've not been on the front line as long as some right. people. And hypervigilance is a well-documented phenomenon within military. Yeah, military. You, know, you hear about it all the time, don't you? Hypervigilance. People checking exits. I'm constantly looking around the place to see who might be up to something they shouldn't be up to. And I am profiling people, unfortunately, yeah. based on my previous experiences. Yeah. That's even more reason. Just the fact that I'm aware of that is helpful. Right. If I'm not aware of it and I'm doing that, I'm not guarding against going up to somebody say, look, the reason I want to search you is because of this. Right. Are you with me? And I'm yeah, not but communicating. Then, so then tell me this. So your job then is to prevent that being a blight on certain communities, victimisation of certain communities. So how do you start reconciling those two things? Well, that's one really sharp operational case for it. Yeah. What we don't want is decision-making bias based on a um, human being who has been exposed to trauma and not been supported to process it. Yeah. Um, there are lots of other aspects. Your relationships. We talked about that before we started outside of work. You don't want people to start thinking um, only people in my organisation see the world the way that I do. Yeah. You, you know, you don't want the stress of it. Um, because w what happens is that people's cups are quite full with this unprocessed trauma. So it goes up, it doesn't come down to quite the same level. It goes up, it stays a little bit higher. And years and years and years of this, you can end up at 80%. And therefore, something that looks quite innocuous can tip people over. And of course, what we want to get to look at, and this is the same with trauma-informed work with vulnerable people, is that don't always focus on what's happening at the moment. Understand what's happened before. Right. And so when I... Um, and what I'm trying to encourage is a compassionate workplace where we're slightly less judgmental of each other when things, you know, people's behaviours start to look odd or they're working in a certain way and think, well, maybe that's because of A, B and C. It's not, it's, you know, maybe that's because we aren't supporting people enough to process right. what sort of experiences they're having. So I'm looking at it as a very 
big positive this because I think de facto more people are talking about the mental health. Uh, certainly the people that we're recruiting these days are more confident to talk about the mental health and they have higher expectations of their organisation that, you know, um, this is a stressful job, folks. What are you doing to support me? Are you with me? What are you doing to help me develop my own resilience? Okay. Uh, what's the culture like here? What's my line manager's approachability like? So I'll give you an example. Five Live came out and did some filming on this particular topic for their um, Sunday morning show. And they went out in Blackburn with a load of my officers. And they interviewed and actually put on the Twitter feed one of my female officers who said, yeah, I've had a mental health issue. She said, when the murders of the two officers in GMP happened, Fiona and Nicola, um, it really affected me. And I just didn't feel right coming to work. Something wasn't right. I've got 11 years in, I've been to all sorts of stuff. It was just across the border. I'm a female officer. I just couldn't understand why I didn't feel right, but I definitely didn't feel like I was as resilient as I normally am. She said, I went to my sergeant, Stu, who said, no problem. Come off the front line into um, some CBT counselling. She had CBT counselling very quickly, really good quality, and back at work. Cognitive behavioural yeah, therapy. therapy. Right. Now, my point is, if she'd have said, I came to work and my back was killing me. Right. You know, and she'd gone, oh, it's great, because they got me into some physio. Right. And I was back no one would have blinked. No one would have blinked. You know, because we're all okay, aren't we, with physio? Right. right. But we're not okay with something that's going wrong in our head. So she went in for a checkup from the neck up, as I like to call it. Yeah. And she's back out. So that's what I need to get to right. everywhere. Right. I need my people self-aware enough to spot when they've got a problem. I need them feeling confident they can go, particularly to the line manager, and go, will you listen to me? And I need that line manager to be well informed about where the choices are for that individual. That is the nirvana of sorting out a lot of the issues that we've got around people are exposed to this type of work. And does it, do you think it produces measurably better policing? Well, I think... Or is that not the objective? I think, well, look at it on a hard cost issue. If that hadn't have happened and she'd gone off sick and into crisis, escalated into crisis, that's tens, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of public money and one resource less keeping us all safe. So on a head and heart, I always say to people, the head issue with this is pounds and pence and deployable resource keeping people safe. The heart bit is back to Lord Slim. Yeah. Morally, yeah, if you've got people out there doing this type of work, or actually in any organisation, you know, putting themselves out there for you, you know, it's tough, isn't it? You know, earning a living. Do you feel under scrutiny? Because I'm just, as you're telling me that story now, I'm trying to think, you know, all public services are scrutinised by the press. Yeah. Extremely. And I can imagine a scenario where someone might look at the mental health budget of the police force and from an uncharitable perspective say something horrible in the press yeah, yeah. about it's like trendy namby-pamby that yeah, we never yeah. used to do it. Do you feel under scrutiny well, for those things? I think less so because I think even in some of the media channels that do like to have a go at the police, you know, because we're there yeah. to be able to go at and uh, we tend to be in the clangor drop in business. There's always something going wrong. Uh, even there, I think mental health and the stigma around it there's been so much progress made right that i think people accept i'll tell you what i find really interesting five life said to me oh, i've never had as much positive feedback about an issue to do with policing because what people are getting insight into is 
not just the cops and robbers bit of policing, mm. but actually the emotional experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people think, yeah, it's, I, yeah, it's a tough job, this. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're not paid hundreds of thousands. Nobody joins the police to get rich. Yeah. So um, they're a decent bunch doing the best. And actually, I think we should be supporting them. So generally speaking, no, I think most... I find the opposite, actually. I find politically this is a very, very right. uh, hot topic to engage on, that politically people are very interested and supportive in. It's not about whinging that we haven't got enough resource. It's about saying, what are we doing in terms of our duty of care? Uh, and actually, there's a real public value to getting this right, yeah. which means when you get a knock on your door, God forbid you do, you've got the compassion that you need because that human who, who comes to your door isn't bat damaged by 20 years yes, of trauma. Right, yeah. yeah, and I'll tell you now, we have got some phenomenal people who managed to manage this. Hitherto, any of this work going on. Family liaison officers. You'll speak to people um, have had family liaison officers, particularly from road traffic collisions, who they're still in touch with years and years after they've had a bereavement. And, um, you know, I talk to a lot of family liaison officer groups and I talk about um, the different applications of empathy because they've got to have a bit of self-empathy as well. You don't want to jump in too far with your empathy because you can get emotional burnout. Right. But you don't want to be too objective and sterile. You want compassionate empathy, which is the ability to hold both types of empathy with um, a, you know, a victim of crime or a, somebody who's you know, in a difficult situation. Tell me this. You must run these things. Do people enjoy being police? Just oh. because, like, you know, all, all the time that I put myself in these shoes, I think, wow, I can imagine the original p appeal of it, but yeah. it feels exhausting really imagining question, it. Actually. Well, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, people, we have a very low, low turnover rate. Do you? Okay. 4% turnover okay. rate in policing. Public sector's normally 10 or 11. Yeah. Private sector's 16. There are pockets of higher turnover, like contact centres, but a lot of that turnover is because people join as police staff and then they're getting in as police officers. People might take this the wrong way. I think there's a, there's a real aspect of policing that's part of a caring profession. More so now because the type of work that our people do, you know, 80% of what we do in policing now is um, supporting people who've got uh, mental health issues, missing from homes, child sexual exploitation, uh, domestic abuse. Uh, that's 80%? 80%. Um, that's well documented. Uh, you can look at, I take 1.2, 1.3 million calls in Lancashire a year, uh, treble nines and 101s. And when you break all that down, uh, the vast majority are complex need type right. issues. And it's right that the police get called to those when people are in crisis. But for a big generation, like my generation of police, that I wasn't doing as much of that when I joined. Right. I was I was chasing a lot of burglars about, going to pub fights, lots of blue lights, all that sort of stuff. And that is exciting. Um, it's not as... It's, when you ask uh, police officers and police staff what you find stressful, it's never the running around with a blue light onto a pub fight. They actually find that quite cathartic. Okay. Uh, it is the entrenched complex need difficult stuff that's heartbreaking day in day out seeing intergenerational vulnerability perpetuating through a cycle of a of a family unit or something right. it's you know it's um it's seeing people struggling you know uh, in very difficult circumstances yeah. and being exploited is it sort of softer skills would you say it's well I, th I think um 
you know, certainly um, we are, you know, we're, we're, with, as with society, we're changing. The type of people who join the police are changing, you know, and um, they are coming into it knowing the type of environment they're coming into. Yeah. You know, so you, you couldn't get an application in my force to join as a regular police officer unless you'd had two years' experience working with people with complex needs. Oh, really? What? So people have to sign up and do that yeah. as proof so, of interest? And it's a mis... It's, it's a Where complex needs is what? So, you know, you have um, done volunteering or you've worked in Samaritans social care. Some, right, yes, okay. Samaritans. You might have been a paramedic. Okay. Mental health worker. Um, now, it's, it's a myth that those people can't actually as well do some of the physical side of the job, like sort out pub fights, carry a taser carry a gun if that's what they lead them to in terms of career path you know we're not recruiting social workers what we're recruiting here is people who know what they're going into yeah um, the metaphor for me feels a bit they like really really do enjoy it the metaphor majority. for me do they okay yeah, okay yeah, that's yeah. good oh, that's good the metaphor for me f feels a bit like the army when i was growing up was go out and fight yeah, conflict yeah. And the army, increasingly, yeah. is peacekeeping. That's right, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, like, for all the combat yeah. regime that you Putting try... Putting civil order in yeah, some countries, yeah. Trying to be trying to be polite yeah, yeah, to people yeah. in yeah. Helmand Very province. similar, very similar. I think you're, that, you're spot on. It's like, and, you know, the changing nature of an organisation's business, if it was um, a business, and, you know, again, we were discussing this, like, there would be a different market. You know, your market, our market's changed. We've still got a lot of bad people to lock up and we've still got some stuff to do that is quite honestly we have to, we, we do a lot of enforcement work because that needs to be done um but a big proportion of our work now is working with other organizations to try to intervene early to stop people escalating into crisis and and um you and I talked, so I don't know if I can get this in, but you and I discussed something that I was really interested in, and I see a, a link in what you've just been saying there, about I said that the um, one of the things that works really well at companies in offices is bring your dog to work day, and uh, because it forces interactions between people who normally wouldn't interact. Someone sees a delightful cocker spaniel, runs over to pet it, says, oh, what do you do? And you gave me an example of how that... That sort of thing's relevant to policing. Well, I was uh, uh, recently over in the States talking to a range of law enforcement um, leads around um, this, this topic. And uh, the FBI use um, dogs to um, put into situations where people have been exposed to trauma staff. And uh, they have got dogs that are trained to do that. Very much like you would get dogs who are trained to go into dementia homes. You know, they're very, you know, that, like you say, it's, um, it breaks down barriers. It gets a conversation going and it's slightly different. And I think with this agenda, you've got to innovate. You've got to sometimes do things that just appear so counterculture. You know, put, bringing mindfulness in to the workplace is becoming more and more popular as a route where people can, you know, um, be present, calm down. Uh, get focused, uh, get some reflection time. Um, you know, in my force, we've got numerous uh, contemplation rooms. Now, on, on Twitter, funnily enough, we have had a bit of a bashing over this off some probably more traditional people in policing who've gone, we used to go to the pub in my day, we'll have a game of snooker, you know. Right, well, not people don't go to the pub anymore. Mm. You know, we don't have snookers, we don't have bars in police stations. 
and actually that might have worked for your generation it isn't working for this generation so let's just give people choices and the you know if you're sat all day viewing indecent images grading them to get prosecutions you need somewhere in your workspace you can go to chill out probably mainly before you go home especially if you've got a family because you need to recalibrate and get your head straight and that is a duty of care from people who are doing that to keep the public safe um, that's the least we can do mm. I mean you're talking about a thousand pounds spent at Ikea mm. to get one of these rooms kitted out and it's come from the staff this not me mm. they've, they've done it it's like viral it's like it's something that they've crowd funded themselves they've crowdsourced it yeah. Uh, if I'd have done these contemplation rooms, and go, I'm not going in them because yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, you know, it's the bosses. You know, you get into some really interesting aspects. I think when you start through the well-being agenda about things like the power of the crowd. Yeah. You know, the fact that hierarchical organisations don't really work around this topic. Blimey! I mean, how do you deal with that? And the police? I'd well, have thought police is like well by. Default a very hierarchical organisation. Well, it is, and of course that's one of its strengths because it's an emergency. Hierarchies work. Yeah. You know, you don't want everybody stood like going, "Why am I standing here?" Uh, right. Well, just stand there until we've cleared this scene. Um, you need a hierarchy, and that's one of the strengths of the police. But actually, in terms of um, things like staff engagement, well-being, employee voice, it's a real problem. Yeah. Because to get through it all, most organisations have got a hierarchy. Uh, if you're flattening hierarchy um, too much, there's only certain types of organisations that can cope with that. Mm. So what we've tried to do is have multiple channels of engagement with our staff so that um, we can really give them a voice. It also saves you a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of people spending money on wellbeing interventions that are completely pointless and the staff aren't interested in them and they don't want to engage with them. But somebody somewhere thought it was a good idea you'll find that most things that you need for well-being are actually free because it's how I treat you. Okay. It's about how we treat each other. There are things, resourcing, logistics, you know, IT, training, shift patterns. There's a, it's, it's everything to do with an organisation, but actually what really does damage people's well-being is if they are not treated with respect. Right. And fairly. So they might be treated with disrespect when they're out on responding to a call but if they're treated with respect when they're back in like the workplace yeah, fairly and honestly you know yeah. not hands off people it's like um what happens when someone knows they've messed up well i mean generally speaking you know when it's high stake stuff sometimes isn't it? yeah i mean i think i think the thing is with it the one of the one of the problems is that um we expect our people um on the front line particularly and in call centres and stuff to make really tough decisions because mm. you've got to make a choice about what you do and what you don't do uh, because everything can't be done and sometimes when we've got the worst of two options to choose it's a it's a lose-lose decision we you know we stand accused of then blaming the individual rather than the organization taking responsibility for it you know so i think what you need you know what um what you want is to encourage people to be able to take risks and make risky decisions because that fundamentally is the, is the business that we're in. Um, and I think we do that. The, 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 really, the, 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 the weird thing is with it in policing, you know, we take some of the highest risks 
that you would ever take in terms of decision making around things like firearms and what have you. When it comes to, um, there's a, a guy's come up to me on the street. This is this is something that we, we know happens. Somebody's come up to me on the street. Uh, I'm working, you know, the sort of where all the bars are, and he's got someone's punched him in the nose, and he's got a bloody nose, and he goes, "Somebody just punched me." We call an ambulance. When you ring the ambulance up, they say, "Why are you ringing us for this?" Just is he walking? Is he okay? Is he with his mate? Well, get him to get a taxi and go to any. And you got the police to go. Oh well, yeah. If he walks away and falls over and dies, I'm in trouble. Right. Because I've spoken to him right. now. So there's this real sort of legitimate concern that they're going, people are going to be dealt with disproportionately. Right. That doesn't exist in a lot of other professions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think we've got to correct that and we've got to do that by instilling in our people that, you know, um, if it's a genuine and honest mistake and they've done the best they could at the time, we've got to support them. Yeah, 100%. yeah, yeah. If, they've, if they're bad, then we need to get them out. Um, but the vast majority come to work every day trying to do a decent job. And talk me through this. So, so you've created this blue light wellbeing framework. Yeah. So, so is this trying to sort of institutionalise some of what you've discussed? Yeah, what we needed was, um, because people do tend to either um, run away from this because it looks like a big elephant to start having a go at, um, or the, um, throw the kitchen sink at it, as I've said before. So we wanted to get the evidence base for it, and we worked with Dame Carol Black, Public Health England, who actually funded Oscar Kilo. And uh, that was done as an Oscar Kilo because it's phonetic alphabet. You know, the brand of it is very much a blue light brand. And, you know, what we're into, what inside that is a set of um, questions, self-assessments that say, right, if you're getting all this stuff done brilliantly, which, which nobody ever will be because it's, it's actually all yeah. about, there's a lot of stuff about changing culture and that leadership, all that sort of stuff, then this is what you need to be doing to live a world-class well-being in blue light services. We are the only, as far as I'm aware, um, country service that have got a set specific um, evidence base that people can follow like that. Every force in this country is signed up to doing that. The fire service nationally signed up to it. We've got the non-home office forces, so uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, British Transport Police, National Crime Agency, everybody, um, basically goes into the Oscar Kilo site, does the self-assessment. We have a researcher employed who um, mines your self-assessment, finds you with the gap analysis, and then we're doing workshops and you know peer-to-peer -peer stuff to just get better and better at it. So, and, and over time, if new research comes in, we'll feed it into that. We can adapt the framework moving forward. So, you know, I always say to people, don't just do something, stand there. You know, don't 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 say as a senior leader of an organisation, I'm interested in your well-being, Bruce. Unless before you've done that, you've worked out exactly what you're going to do about it. Hang on, don't just say something. Stand there. Don't just run off, because right. we're a can-do organisation. Okay. That's one of our strengths. Is this? Okay. You know, we're we're off. We're off. We're off, and um, that's one of our big strengths. But it also drives us nuts certain, sometimes because we. We sometimes, when it comes to things like this, you've just got to stop. And the main thing you've got to do when you stop is two things. Look at the evidence that's out there and listen to your people who are nearest the work. Because how I see work isn't how it used to be when I was out there. Yeah. And so I need to instill in my leaders that they need to go and observe people in the work and then listen to what they're telling you about how it is. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's really... Would you, do you, would you ever do a back to the floor day? Would you ever? I, I was out. I did um, Pride in Blackpool. 
okay. on um, Saturday, which was a community event. Yeah. Uh, most of us did it on our days off. Okay. Um, uh, you know, and uh, another thing that from some sort of like anonymous accounts, we've had a bit of a criticism for. Right. Why are you going to a Pride event when we're right. busy? Right, it's nothing to do with you being busy. Yeah. Um, anyway, when I'd done that, I was in full uniform. I went for a drive around Blackpool, yeah. uh, shouted up for a couple of jobs. Um, you know, I know Blackpool because I used to work there. So I'd be confident doing it. My preferred way is not to uh, go out necessarily and accompany a response officer, for example. My preferred way is to walk into the operational environment and just sit down and have a chat with people. Right. And say what's Hear going what on they're for saying. you. And then, you know, turn the leadership uh, deal into, well, my job as a leader is to work on the basis you're trying to do the best you can. Um, and my job is to unblock things that are getting in your way. So in your workplace, there'll be things that drive you nuts. Th these, are, these are niggles that really bug you. And I've spoken to people, for example, like family liaison officers for traffic collisions. These are people who do a high emotional labor yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. And they say to me, I'm up for it. I do this job. I actually really love doing this job because I do my best for families drives me nuts is when I get back to the nick and the printer's not working. Right. That's my job to fix. Right. Are you with me? So it's simple, all, but it's like not all difficult stuff this. Right. Right? If I went through with you what your niggles were yeah. with your workplace, most of them are fixable. Yeah. There'll be daft bureaucracy. Forms that don't shouldn't need filling in. Names of people who sit near me. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. It's like people making things harder work than they need to be. You know what I mean? It's like why does it take so long to get something done? Um, so I think what the wellbeing agenda does is it focuses on the people nearest the work and it makes the support functions that are meant to be there, enabling them to do that job, really get their act together. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As I say, two episodes this week. Look out for the second one on Thursday. I've linked to a couple of the initiatives that Andy discussed in the show notes. So so look at your podcast app and you should see them down the page. The best way to stay connected to the show is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. You can subscribe there. I hope you've enjoyed that. It's a, a, a real pleasure and a real honour to chat to Andy. Before I go, I should uh, remind you that my own book, The Joy of Work, is now available for pre-order and audible. So you can go along if you enjoy these podcasts. You can hear me reading the book for you. The book's out on Blue Monday in January. Go along and you can pre-order that on audible. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.